You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome, everybody. Thank you very much for coming along this afternoon on this glorious day. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging that we are meeting on the lands of the Kulin Nation and to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. My name's Leanne Hoddle. I am one of the Cities People Love team that's here today. Uh, this event is brought to you by Cities People Love, which is a uh, an organisation that's focused on creating a really positive and open conversation about the city and we do that by providing great research to um, which is in a really accessible format that's uh, available for everybody for the public for our politicians for our decision makers for our practitioners and also by running events like this which are about stimulating a conversation about the city and how we want the city to evolve um, and, and be a city that everybody does love. So we have a fantastic uh, discussion today. Uh, it's folk, this, this discussion is actually centred on a research release that we did uh, late last year, which was about the fact that we shouldn't be designing for someone who's average and that designing for average is average design because it doesn't actually think enough about the amazing diversity of needs, um, of, the, of the amazing diversity of people that we have living in our cities. So I'm delighted to be here today and we've got a fantastic panellist, which I will now hand over to Desley, who is our facilitator, to kick us off. Thanks. Thank you very much, Leanne. And thank you to Cities People Love for triggering this great conversation. It's my great pleasure to be here to work with our three esteemed panellists today. We've got three people who are experts in their field and incredibly knowledgeable and here to share that with you. I'm going to introduce them to you in a minute. But just to describe the format, we will hear from each of our panellists and then run them through a series of questions. So if you have questions, please put them to one side for our Q&A, which we'll make sure we get to and have plenty of time for. So if you don't mind if I sit down. Thank you. I'll start by introducing Imogen. Hello, Imogen Carr. Hello. <laughs> Imogen is a PhD student um, candidate in the School of Geography at the University of Melbourne. And I've just heard that's kind of expanded to become something much bigger as well. She has a master's degree in architecture and design, moving from spatial to the social. Imogen's current research focuses on the complexities of negotiating and navigating social difference within the public realm. And we'll hear a lot more about that as we move through our session today. And then I'll introduce Bree. Hello, Bree. Dr. Bree Trevina is a social researcher and strategic designer working across public space, architecture planning and policy. As an associate with urban, the urban consultancy Left Bank Co, Bree's work focuses on shaping equitable and sustainable public environments. You've got a, a history with Arab and Creative Victoria. And over here, for those of you who were here earlier, this is a wonderful creation made by four to 12 year olds under the guiding hand of you, Catalina. And I'll introduce you. So you're an associate Hayball and founder of Cities for Play. Natalia Cruikshank specialises in the design and child-orientated learning and play environments. So your research focuses on child-friendly cities and how the built environment can contribute to the health and well-being of children. You were awarded a Churchill Fellowship in 2019, which was an exploration in global best practice, and no doubt you bring that into your everyday work, and we'll hear more about that. So thank you to our three panellists. This is going to be a fairly informal conversation, so I'll pose a question to our panellists and then invite them to respond. And we've got some juicy ones. We really want to know a bit more about each of you. You're all, I've spoken to all of you in advance of this session and I know that there's an incredible amount of passion behind what you do. So I'm going to ask you please in turn to tell the audience about your research or your practice. 
what is it that drives you? What do you really care about and why? And I'm going to start, if you don't mind, by going to you, Imogen. Thanks, Des. Um, so, I, yeah, as Des said, I'm doing my PhD. Um, and I really got into this with... Um, yeah, I, was, I guess I was spurred on by um, a fear that I saw in the public realm, both of kind of um, violence but also of unknown. So fear of the unknown kind of pro prompting racism within the public domain. And I felt really strongly about this. It was really scary to me. So um, my research is really interested in looking at um, how people experience public spaces, whether they feel safe and welcome or whether they don't, and why this might be, and thinking about the complexities of identity that contribute to this, but also um, the complexities of place, so the social and cultural and historical aspects of a place which really um, contribute to how people feel in a space. So that's what I'm interested in, how people encounter one another um, and, yeah, how they experience space. Thanks, Imogen. Bree, you next. Um, it's a really good question. It's something I've been thinking about quite a lot myself lately because I've had a fairly diverse career in public practice and private practice, exploring everything from creative precincts to social infrastructure, working on major transport projects. And I guess the kind of red thread that has always run through my interest and in my practice is really around um, something not too dissimilar in terms of lived experience and how we start to engage that in the conversation of how we design spaces that work for people. And when we start to think about people, who are we talking about here? I think for me a particular interest is then how we gonna get a flyover. Just wait a moment. It's an event city we live in. Um, <laughs> A real particular interest for me has been not only how we design for places for people that work, but also how we understand that as evolving and changing over time. So what does that mean in terms of us adapting socially? What does it mean in terms of us adapting from a planetary perspective? And what does it mean in terms of us being able to create spaces that can evolve and be flexible over time? Thank you. Natalia. Um, so I grew up in many different places all around the world. As a child, my parents loved to travel all around the world and live in different places. And so as a child, I got to experience various cities um, and very subconsciously at that point, I realised that some cities were designed with my needs in mind and others weren't. Um, and then as I studied architecture and became a practitioner, that sort of gap between who we're designing for and who gets to have a say in design became more and more apparent. I mean, I became very interested in designing spaces for children, but throughout um, the design process, it was very, very rare that children ever got a voice within that process um, and even less of, of a voice within, you know, the design of cities themselves. So I thought, you know, there's a gap some, for some reason. Um, as architects, we very much think about the client and not the user, which isn't necessarily the same thing. Um, and, yeah, and I thought that gap needed to be filled by, by talking about it and advocating a little bit more for, for difference in, in design discussions. And we've had a great experience of just how creative children can be when you ask them the question, right? So I'm going to stick with you first, if that's okay. So what can we learn? collectively from engaging with people whose perspectives aren't normally incorporated into our policy discussions? I think particularly when it comes to designing spaces for children, um, their engagement is extremely tokenistic and I'm sure others who engage with adults will find the same thing. So we go into an engagement process with decisions already being made. So a decision has been made about the budget for the play space, uh, the location of the space, usually the master plan has already been designed and then we go out and ask kids, you know, what, what colour do you want this space to be or what's the um, animal that will be the emblem on the play space. I think the, um, the negative of that is that we miss out on this deep knowledge that we can get from 
all sorts of people, kids included, um, to be able to really create spaces that are meant for them. Um, an example of that, we ran a workshop uh, in Brisbane in Kabucha where we engaged with kids. Originally, the, the council wanted to create a new playground in the, in the park, um, but instead we said, why don't we engage with kids before any of those decisions are made? Um, and what ended up happening is once we started discussing with kids what they love and what they hate about their environment, it soon became very apparent that actually another playground wasn't what they needed, but they really wanted to engage with nature. So what they wanted is some small steps to be able to get closer to the river and to have uh, some information about the local birds and, and animals that were living in that sort of local area. So all of a sudden, the end outcome completely changed to the better, but also the kids became so much more engaged because all of a sudden they had ownership over their environment. They felt a sense of, um, you know, a sense of belonging to their space and also that empowerment that comes with engaging with people to design their own spaces. So the benefits are enormous, not just for the end outcomes of design, but also for the actual perception and the, the sort of knowledge of children and, and others themselves. Thank you. That's a really great example as well. I'm sure there's some other examples over here. Who'd like to go first? Uh, yeah, I can jump in. Um, I think what's really important about um, engaging with diverse voices is to recognise that um, that identities are not static, that they're always dynamic and shifting in response to context. And so when you engage deeply with people and you hear their stories, you get much richer information. So um, in my research, when I interviewed women in the North Richmond neighbourhood, which is hyper-diverse in terms of kind of socioeconomics, um, in terms of um, race and ethnicity, and also um, it has the contentious issue of public drug use and the um, medically supervised injecting room. So it's a, a, a place with um, a lot of things going on, a lot of complexity. Um, and when I interviewed women, what might be expected is that a sense of risk. Um, and what was interesting and what emerged from women's stories when you dig a bit deeper, while there is a sense of risk for some women in, this, in these spaces, there's also care. And so it's recognising that people are balancing tensions and complexity um, between care and risk, for example. Um, yeah, so, and I think without um, engaging with diverse perspectives, you kind of miss some of the nuance and complexity. Bree, have you got um, to add? Yeah, uh, you, you ask what we can learn. I think we can just, we can learn more about the why, right? So we can then better understand the kind of the, the what and the how. And if we kind of flip to the other end of the age spectrum, you know, the, the mayor of Bogota said something really interesting about children, first of all, as kind of an indicator species, right? Like if you get the, the city right for the kids and that accounts for mobility, access to nature, freedom of movement, these kinds of things, then it kind of works for everyone. And I think this works at both end of our spectrum. So if you are designing for a child and for, you know, an elder, then you are in fact kind of encompassing people who might be with prams, who might be temporarily less mobile, a whole range of different things. And similarly, when we've done some research into kind of ageing communities, a lot of the ethnographic research we did, one of the most common things that came back was people saying, I've turned 65, no one cares what I think anymore. <laughs> um, certainly not in terms of a, a public realm. And when we think about this kind of idea of a spectrum, that people are different over time, that too goes for kind of ageing. You know, it's from 65 to 85, most people are still living in a kind of very mobile way. They're generally still living on their own. So what does that mean in terms of understanding what that nuance looks and how that's going to change over time? So I think that we do ourselves a disservice by not engaging more widely, exactly as you said, with the ultimate users and potential future users of these spaces by creating places that are kind of more narrower and less functional than they could be. And therefore, I can see my colleague Michelle there in the audience who often uses the, uh, the phrase, you know, when, when the, the change of cost is low. So if we have this discussion at the beginning, the change is, is lower, not only economically, but also in terms of what the potential social cost is, what the emotional cost is, and even what the environmental cost is. You point out, don't you, Bree, in some of your written work that a quarter of the population will be at retirement age fairly soon. We're all heading there, people. Um, but, but this is really interesting when we start to think about what that looks like. You know, it, we tend to think of this as a kind of something that is both kind of very far away and, and something that will perhaps never happen to us. But 
Uh, over 65s are the fastest growing cohort. Uh, people are living longer. They are living in kind of different ways. And I think there is this uh, potential to kind of move into quite radical spaces in terms of what that last quarter of our lives could look like. And when we start to think about the fact that that is in fact going to be all of us, hopefully, at a certain point, then we start to also consider that we're not just designing for an aging population. We're in fact designing for our future selves and for our children. Can we dig a little bit deeper into the question of diversity or intersectionality? And I know that might be a bit of a buzz term for some people. Very close to your heart, Imogen, and your work. Uh, yes. So, yep. you know, how do we consider that in and across different groups? Um, yeah, so I think what's important is to recognise that um, not all women are the same, not all aged people are the same, that we have this complexity in each of our identities, which is made up from so many different factors in our lives. Um, and I think in my work um, with intersectionality, I'm not just thinking about um, these kind of like categories that you tick in a, in a form that identify who you are to other people, but also all your past experiences and how that shapes how you inhabit the world, you know? I think, um, yeah, intersectionality, um, it's sometimes become a bit of a buzzword. It can be a little bit problematic, but I think um, it's really important to understand that just the complexity of people's lives is so much greater than ticking boxes on a wall. Any comments from Bree? Or about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really obvious even when it comes to designing for kids and even more so when it comes to designing for young people that it's sort of a blanket term without actually digging deep into it. A really great example is, you know, designing for uh, recreation and play spaces for, for kids. When you look at statistically, you know, one in four kids in Australia doesn't, um, doesn't achieve the recommended minimum daily activity needs. When you then look at teenagers, that becomes one in six. But when you dig further down and look at teenage girls, that becomes one in 12. So one in 12 girls do not undertake the minimum amount of recommended physical activity. So you start digging into these stats and you realise actually within even that group, there are so many subgroups that ev need even more attention. And when that's linked to design, you start seeing what the connections are between that. When we think about designing spaces for youth, we often think about pump tracks, skate parks, things that are very much designed around the needs of boys. Um, and we forget about the needs of teenage girls. So those needs, um, not just for youth, but the, the different categories or the different needs of that needs to be thought about even further to address those needs. And of course, the reason why girls aren't in skate parks isn't because they can't. Of course they can, but it's because, you know, the design doesn't take into account the things that they like. Um, and there are other, obviously, behavioural issues also. Um, and even when it comes to designing play spaces in schools, there's some fascinating research tracking the movement of girls versus boys uh, within playgrounds. And they find that boys tend to be in the centre of spaces. So they tend to be drawn towards things like the soccer pitch or basketball, which are all in the centre, while the girls tend to be on the edges and more concealed spaces. And often those spaces are, tend to be out of bounds uh, through sort of regulations. So all of a sudden those spaces get cut from the ability for girls to inhabit those spaces. So it's sort of this discrimination just by, by default, by taking away those opportunities for, for girls. Thank you. Bree. Did you have anything to add? I guess the only thing that I'd have to add to this, and this is sort of something that, that's already been raised, is the, the criticality of being able to kind of build those evidence bases. And that often means when we start to think about how we design a project before we even get to the design, how we're going to go about getting those kinds of evidence bases. So I think it's something that is kind of typically, it's not really often traditionally within either the, the timeframes or the budgets or the processes of how we start to think about this. So to start to think about intersectionality in any kind of way, I think we also need to start to think about, well, what does that mean in terms of how we structure projects, what the time duration of those projects is and how we start to consider that as something that's not a kind of nice to have in our budget line, but something that is a kind of fundamental underpinning for the project. So how do we do that? How do we, you know, what's the pathway to really understanding somebody's lived experience so we can incorporate it question. into 
Um, so I, I think there's there's a few things within that around um, understanding what kind of new evidence spaces and starting to think about evidence a little bit differently. And I think, you know, this is kind of a conversation that we often have in terms of qualitative information and how do we make sure that that is something that is kind of trusted and verified and that that can actually then be turned into a kind of a technical design and a, and a built form outcome. So I think key to this is really to be progressing the kind of work that Imogen is doing around what are the different kind of mechanisms by which we can start to gather this information. And then how do we do the kind of work that um, Tai is doing over here in terms of what does that then mean in terms of turning that into a design brief, right? Because you get this kind of qualitative information and it can become a, a quantitative indicator when we get it at scale. But then what does that actually mean in terms of creating something and designing something that is going to work for people? I've heard you say some really great things about collecting this information through storytelling, Imogen. Um, yeah, so I guess storytelling is great and you get so much rich data, but like you say, Brie, um, how do you use this data? Um, but one thing I'm thinking about at the moment is um, kind of tactical urbanism. And we've seen a lot of this in kind of post-COVID where we're needing to re-envisage what the city looks like and how we use it. But if we can combine um, sort of these tactical urbanism-created spaces where they're, they're not designed as a kind of finished end product, it's not a um, linear design process. Instead, we're thinking about kind of feedback loops where people's experiences of these spaces can be fed into and the design can evolve and emerge. So if we could um, bring together storytelling into these spaces as a way to collect data for people, it's, it's doing two things. It's creating a space where people can connect and tell stories and, and get to know each other, encounter one another, see things through a different perspective. Um, and it's also, it's, a, it's an opportunity to get data for people who are designing spaces, to be sitting in these spaces, to be engaging with people, to understand on a kind of deeper physical level, like how is this space functioning for people? What's working, what's not? And feeding that back into how the design progresses. So, Natalia, I'm, and I'm drawing upon what we've been through, is that how you would collect that kind of data, by putting children into a space to create a city? Yeah, I mean, ideally we can work with kids from a very, very early stage before any decisions are actually even made, but that's quite rare. Realistically, we get given a brief and the brief already outlines what is the perceived need. So, you know, we need a, a new building for our school which has 10 classrooms and these are the visions for, for this new space. And there's really no opportunity to then track backwards and try and figure out whether that's actually what the kids want, uh, whether that's what the teachers want. It's sort of already a little bit too late to, to, to get into that. Um, and there's also an ethical dilemma here about, as architects, you know, obviously the end result or the end product that we design is what brings us money in. So are we actually ethically the right people to start briefing these, these things if, um, if really what we want is to create a new building? while in fact what might be needed was just a behavioural change um, or, you know, some, a small sort of intervention. So it is, it's a question about briefing, I think, and, and how, how early on we can get in. Um, and I think councils need to take on that responsibility. I mean, there's some really great examples in Wales, in the UK, where within their requirements for local councils, they need to engage with kids early on before any decisions are made where the play spaces are, where uh, you know safety um, elements might be imp implemented to make things safer for kids. Kids need to be consulted from day one. And by embedding that into policy and by embedding that into their requirements, um, all of a sudden it means that it just becomes common practice for them. Um, so by the time an architect get, gets involved or a designer gets involved, the consultation has already happened and can continue happening in a much deeper way, I think. As somebody who works in the consultation space, I know it doesn't happen very often that it starts early. So given we think that's a real key to success, how are we going to make those changes? Or how can we influence facilitate that change with our policymakers. Yeah, I think there's two things there. One, um, I always go back to data. One is kind of having the, the data to show that when we do do this, it works better, it creates better outcomes. There's those multidimensional benefits that kind of hit what we need it to from an economic perspective, from a social perspective, from a cultural perspective. So we actually start to build the evidence to show that there is extraordinary value in doing this. And I think the other component is, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, when it's ended, i.e. when you hand over and it's, it's a finished product, 
you know, places sort of begin, right, when you hand them over, they sort of take that life on. So I think the other aspect of this is what we do with places that are already formed and then what can we do in terms of making those changes as we move forward. And I think that can be things that are kind of behavioural, they're often operational. So sometimes, of course, our built environment has such an extraordinary impact on uh, how, how our well-being and how we live. But, you know, it might also be that over time these things adapt and we're able to kind of hack and tweak those spaces to be making that change as things happen because it's not always going to be something that is there from the beginning. And in fact, if it's a kind of already existing space, if it's an adaptive reuse, which again, from a sustainability perspective, it's a pretty good outcome, then that means that we can think about that in a slightly more elastic way. I'd like to hear from our other panellists as well. <laughs> I mean, I think also technology can play a part in that feedback loop um, to be able to receive information from people much faster. Um, so there's plenty of app examples where councils um, try to get information from, from citizens very quickly. One which I love in particular is called the Secret... Um, the Secret Agent app, which is specifically for kids. It's in Finland where kids get to choose their own avatar um, and then they sort of become this avatar in the city where they can track and trace various issues that they might see in the city. So it might be that a traffic light intersection makes them feel unsafe so that they can log that on the app. Or there might be, you know, a, a, a rubbish bin that is always overflowing and once again they can log that in. So it gives them the power to have a say about their environment and it also gives the council that ability to collect the data in a really, really quick way to see whether or not there's specific things that citizens, kids or whoever it might be really care about. So it's that sort of data collection which can be done. I know there are, of course, issues with that too. Um, but as you were raising, you know, to do with... Yeah, many privacy things, but also to do with how what's you, how is that data used. But it could be a good first step. Great. I'm actually going to look into that example. I really like it. I think it's a great one for the city here. Imogen. Yeah, I think there's a similar tool that's being used locally called CrowdSpot, um, which has been used where people can basically just um, log into a digital map, drop a pin, and upload some of their experiences of place. And like you say, I think it's a great first step, um, but it, it can lack the kind of complexity of what what is factored into those experiences. It, it's quite a kind of small snippet of data that we can capture. Um, yeah, so thinking about how we can combine lots of different tools to create, you know, good outcomes. There's no one magic technique for engagement, is there? It's a suite, like a combination of them. Changing that mindset in industry and policymakers from something of this being a burden to have to do to being an add-on, a value add, is the challenge. Is that is that what I'm I'm hearing? It's it's something I've experienced as a challenge in my work life. Yeah, I think it's not just a challenge for us as professionals. I think it's also the way that we educate young designers and architects, which is very much focused on the client, on a brief that's already been established. And also, you know, you flip through any architecture or design magazine and there's hardly ever a person uh, in any of the photos. We still have this obsession with with the object rather than the interaction between the form and, and the person. Um, last year, I co-ran a studio at the University of Technology in Sydney where we got the students, architecture students, to um, first create a character that they were going to design their space around. Um, the character had to be quite different to who they were and then they needed to start interacting that character with other characters in the class. So it might be one person was designing for an eight-year-old child the other was designing for an 85-year-old grandmother and they had to then intersect the lives of those fake characters and create spaces that were going to be both great for both of them to interact in. So all of a sudden started shifting the perception around who the client is and also your sort of your moral or ethical obligation as an architect to think about not just your client but the users um, that will be using that space. So I think it starts with the way we educate designers around it. All right. This is a question to the whole panel. So, and drawing upon some of the great examples you've already given, what do you see as the role of design in addressing some of the opportunities and challenges? I'm just reflecting on something you said yesterday, Nat, about the windows down low so little people can look through them. And I thought it was a lovely sort of metaphor for that's such an easy thing to do, right? We don't do it. So what, is, what are the other things you can see that design can fix some of those problems? 
I think um, the power of design is um, that designers tend to be adaptable and flexible in their thinking. So um, if we can have outcomes that do that as well, uh, that's going to benefit everyone. You know, like maybe it's not one solution that works for everyone. And like, like the low windows that give kids an opportunity to see out, um, having design that has a kind of multiplicity to it, that there's lots of opportunity for kind of adapting to space or adapting space to fit the needs of whoever's in it. We've probably got a few designers in the audience, so be prepared for some questions from them soon. Bree, did you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, and this is a, a fairly specific thing because these are both kind of great answers, but I think there's a, a significant role there in design for kind of being the space where you can kind of trial and test some of these ideas and then when that starts to link in with kind of policy frameworks, that is where it starts to, I think, become quite powerful in terms of being able to, you know, policy is fantastic at kind of elevating particular conversations and creating these institutional frameworks that then enable us to roll these things out at scale. But I think there is something really quite special in that role of design, particularly where, as you say, you're able to get a bit of flat kind of flexibility in your brief or you're able to be a bit more experimental in your thinking in terms of bringing up that evidence space and demonstrating what can be possible in terms of just being um, giving others confidence to to move forward with those kinds of things and start to build those evidence spaces, which again, you know, you're doing a PhD, which sort of comes into the, that space of academia leaning in there as well to start providing that evidence base at scale. Okay, I'm going to give you an option to answer this question in any way you like. It's our last question. So what do you think is gained or not gained when we do or when we don't consider multiple perspectives and diverse voices in our design? So this is your, you know, your big key message. What can we gain? What are the big things, the big wins in this? Or indeed, what might we be really missing out on? I mean, yeah, I've got so many examples. Um, but one, that I, one thing that always strikes me when it comes to design and designing for the wrong person um, is when it comes to designing move, the movement, the way in which we move through our cities. Realistically, the way the figure that we're using to create the sort of ideal of movement is very much, you know, typically the white male who's the breadwinner, who lives somewhere out in the suburbs, who's usually moving around for economic purposes with a car. The reality of that is that you are all of a sudden creating so many barriers for anyone that doesn't fit into that mould. So anyone that's a parent, anyone that's a child, anyone that has a mobility issue, you're all of a sudden excluding them. The power of design here is that you can start breaking down those barriers. So by, you know, by um, expanding the perspectives of who we're designing for, all of a sudden you, you can really improve people's lives, you know, by thinking about the way in which children move through a city, creating safe travel routes for children in, in a way that they do in Japan, creating um, feeding rooms for mothers uh, within shopping strips like they also do in Japan, or creating, you know, creating um, easy ways for mothers to get onto subways or for parents generally to get onto subways you can start to create a much better city, I think, generally, um, and, and really just expand um, our own views of, of who this, this ideal figure is that we're designing for. I think yeah, design can be extremely powerful in that way to shift people's lives. And realistically, we're discriminating by default by only focusing on, on one person or one ideal mould. You've got a lovely article on cities people love about the impact of cars and streets and... Mm how we used to use those spaces for recreation for children. Um, I remember that. I remember hitting tennis balls over power lines in my street growing yeah. up. Yeah. I couldn't do that now. Other examples? Um, so I guess what I think is really important in the city and, and the diverse voices in the city is that that's exactly what makes it an exciting place to be, you know? Like, if everyone was just the, you know businessman the white businessman trudging through the city like in that brack painting like how dull would it be you know and we've enlivened the city to bring different groups into the city and I think what's really important then and to bring it back to my initial reason for doing the research and that that witnessing that fear in the city is to create spaces like this where people can encounter one another but they can encounter new ideas and new perspectives and kind of we can move beyond that fear because that fear just comes from the unknown, really. And so 
creating spaces like this that, that are a beautifully um, designed physical space, but also then socially activating those spaces to create opportunities for people to come together, to tell stories, to share ideas, to get to know one another. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right, it's that beautiful, messy complexity There's what like, people like living in cities. And I think in terms of, you know, what we have to lose is in the short term from a, you know, a designer and a policy practitioner, what you have to lose is almost the kind of um, your comfort, right? Because it actually means you have to do things in a, a slightly different way. But what you have to gain in, is far better outcomes in terms of not only the social and sustainability outcomes we're looking for, but for the economic outcomes, right? Like places that are more productive and more generative from a social, from a cultural and from an economic perspective are those places with a great diversity of uses where people are kind of enabled to kind of be within those spaces as much as possible at all times of the day when they need to be. So I think in terms of, you know, what we have to lose, it, it is a bit of a discomforting space to be in, but the gains for it are enormous. All right, folks. I'm not sure how long we've got. 20 minutes or so for questions. Please, if you'd like to ask a question, just put your hand up and let me know if you're addressing it to the entire panel or to a particular member of the panel, Natalia, Bree or Imogen. All questions are good questions. Yes, please. Hi, thank you. Um, so um, a big part of, of making the, the public realm more inclusive and that takes a lot of perspectives and it's for everybody is also who's designing it. And, and of course, there, there is a big importance of having women in, in, involved in city planning and, and also people from different backgrounds. So I was just wondering if you uh, could talk about what are the ways that we can make our, our, our industry or, or our profession more inclusive and, 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 and to bring people's perspectives, not only in the participation, but also in, as an, with an active role in, in designing spaces. Over to you first, Bree. Um, it, it's a really, really good question. I think one of these really comes down to kind of our, our hiring practices, what we think is important in terms of when we are engaging people. And it can be quite challenging, particularly in kind of architecture and design spaces, where we're often looking for sort of sets of technical competencies that often come with kind of often, you know, a more aligned to particular social backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, etc. So I think there is a lot of space within this area to start thinking differently about, you know, the, the types of people that we are looking for in terms of those kind of characteristics as much as the kind of technical capacities that could potentially be taught within a, an active work environment as much as kind of um, streaming through the university sector. Yeah. I think it also is about encouraging various diverse kids uh, to consider the career of, of designer. I mean, we run a program at Habel um, where we do a day in the life of an architect. So we invite kids to come into our space and we do a day in the life of showing them what, um, what they could be working on if they were or if they considered being an architect. So it's trying to, I guess, expand also the notion of anyone who might have never even considered it as a career choice to potentially choose that path. So I think it's important to start as early as possible with talking about these things and even engaging with kids about the built environment to give them that empowering feeling that they are, their voice is valuable from day one and that they have the opportunity to even more um, work on these, on these sorts of projects in the future. Thanks to Imogen and then we've got another question. So the only other thing that I would add is making education more accessible. Like why do we not have free education for everyone so that everyone can get those skills, you know, and then we can employ the best people for the job and have diverse workplaces that represent the societies that they're working for. There are elections coming up. <laughs> Hello. A question um, over here, please. Just to extend that a little bit, do you think there's anything, anything about the system of design, education, etc., that actually people who would be really fantastic in that space find alienating, which mean that they can't actually access it. Like maybe the people that we want aren't there because they don't want to be there because they look at you and they go, that's really unappealing. Not you, but, but, <laughs> but sorry. <laughs> but you, do you know what I mean? Like, um, does that make sense? Mm, yeah. Who'd like to make a call there? I would say the workplace culture. Um, I know that when I was working as an architect in a firm, it was really um, alienating because I knew that I wanted to become a mother and that I wouldn't necessarily be able to commit to the hours that were expected of me. 
And yeah, I think that goes across the board for lots of different reasons. Like you say, that maybe people don't want to work in that industry because they don't like the way it looks. Um, so yeah, I think it's about, um, again, coming back to the education, giving people the opportunities so they can start businesses, so they can create the workplaces that they want to work in, you know, that I think we just need more um, diversity in the industry. Is there anything working in that, in that system change space, actually going this particular way that we work, this kind of workplace, this kind of system for delivering these outcomes that we are trying to invite the voices to participate in? Um, is there any work happening in that space for actually changing these spaces to, to be more like what we need them to be? I'm looking at my panel members <laughs> and over at Leanne, you might know. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly talk about engagement with kids because uh, that's my area of expertise. And in Australia, we're doing very, very poorly in, in that regard. Um, it's in no way mandated to have to engage with kids in any way compared to other places around the world. Um, so, for example, in Wales, which I mentioned before, but also in many places around Europe, it's stated in legislation that you have to engage with kids from an early stage um, for them to have a voice in decisions relating to the built environment. So I think that's a simple way of, of you know, in a policy perspective, starting to then open up those opportunities for any child to be involved. Of course, then how we do that is another question. As you said, is a child or even as, as a parent, would you, would you come to the town hall in the middle of the day when you've got a thousand other things to do? What are some easier ways to allow that parent to engage from home or from the park where the child can be occupied while playing? Is there sort of, can we try and, I, I guess, um, try and uh, reduce those boundaries which prevent people from engaging? I think it's a really difficult but important question. I think policy is one answer to that. I think if I'm kind of getting your question right as well, it's sort of, you know, where are we starting to see this happen in, in kind of practice in terms of um, different either workplace or what those pathways could look like. Yeah, I think there's some interesting work happening kind of the, the dual pathway through the university sector. So the ability to kind of do something that might sit more in what we would kind of consider a vocational space and then potentially transition over or be contributing through that pathway. So I think there are kind of opportunities there. There are certainly kind of a lot of smaller, younger firms that are emerging that are kind of reacting against what is happening in some of those more established practice. But again, in order to kind of, you know, establish those, that means that you have already kind of run through that path. So. I think there is something potentially around the kind of module pathway structure and there is also something around what you were talking about earlier in terms of making it visible in terms of what different career opportunities are. So there is of course architect but what does that look like from an urban planning perspective? What does it look like for you to do this in a kind of local government context as opposed to a private context? So I think there is also a lot around just demonstrating there are many different ways to be involved in this kind of built environment conversation including from a consultation space. It's not necessarily just one narrow funnel. Thank you. Yes, we've got another question. Hi, thanks for the talk. Um, my question is, um, I was just wondering um, what, what can be done or, or how do you address when they're, you know, through a, a community consultation process, you come out with irreconcilable or conflicting preferences? For example, if, you know, 60% want more car parks or a road and 40% want a new bike lane, um, what what determines uh, the final decision? Do you think it should be sort of best urban design, uh, best practice urban design, or you know what data suggests is the best approach, and and who makes that decision, or who should make that decision? It's a tricky one. I mean, I think that's often due to the fact that um, you know people might not have the right information in front of them to to make uh, to, to make an informed decision. I mean, it's sort of the concept, you can't ask for what you've never seen. So if you're asking someone to create an innovative district, but all they've ever seen is park, parked cars and a street, then that's what they will um, ask for. So I think it's also to do with having, once again, that really deep engagement so that you can bring people along that journey of why are we trying to do what we're doing, rather than saying, do you want more cars? Do you want a bike path? 
it's sort of a very, very narrow way of uh, engaging with people. If you bring them from the process of why we're trying to do what they do and then having the data to back it up, I think um, often that makes the decision-making a lot simpler because you can say, yes, you've asked for more car spaces, but economically that actually makes very little sense because we'll, you'll make more money if there's less cars parked in front of your shop, whatever it might be. So I think it's that deep engagement that can help solve some of those problems. And... Can I just add, we saw in your workshop earlier with the naming the city, like the kids could not agree on what the name, they all were like, no, I'm adamant, my name was the best and I want it. But it was about compromise, you know, about finding a way that you can engage everyone's voices and find a, a path through. And, and some people might have to give up on part of what they wanted, but you've got to try and please everyone in the best way that you can. And it might become a really long name for the city. <laughs> In the end, I think it was the, the dinosaur, spaghetti, uh, be clean, coconut, best city in the world. That was the full name. Um, I, I must admit, when I was watching that as well, I was thinking, oh, this is like quite a lot of consultations that I've, I've sort of been in. And to some extent, everyone not being in furious agreement is an okay thing, right? Like it's, it's perfectly reasonable and rational for people to have different perspectives, different desires, different outcomes. And again, that's part of what we've been talking about is living in a city that has all of this kind of multiplicity of functions and people doing different stuff. I think there is the, the kind of engagement aspect of this, there is a kind of data aspect of this, and then there is a kind of overarching policy framework, which is around, and you know, I think about this in terms of sustainability quite a lot, because there are a lot of um, perceived personal trade-offs that we might need to make, and probably a lot of us don't, aren't feeling very comfortable at having to make that on a personal level. But nonetheless, at times, there are these kind of broader goals and ambitions that we need to set ourselves, which might mean that we actually have to undergo certain periods of discomfort. And when we start to look at this from a transport perspective, again, it doesn't necessarily mean that you immediately might move to no cars, because there are many reasons why you might require them, including for, you know, work and, and you know, uh, mobility where there's public transport not available. But I think it is, how do you then start to make those kind of moves towards where you need to go to, understanding that there are certain things that have an enormous space for compromise and other things that are perhaps a bit less so. As somebody who works in this space, if I can um, echo what I'm hearing on the panel, and I'm very happy to share the case studies around this work as well, that it does require the deep engagement that you're talking about, Natalia. So the complexity of those planning issues do need to bring together the technical experts, the community in a facilitated um, way so that there's deep listening required and trade-off is often a result of that to reach that level of consensus. But it can happen with the right environment and will. We've probably got time for one more question. Leanne? Thanks, I've actually got about 10 questions, but I'll try and filter one to the top. Um, I, I wanted to ask a question about um, your roles as experts in your fields, when what we're hearing today is that you have the importance of engaging with people um, because they are the experts of their own lives. So, like, how do you do your job to make sure you're sort of bringing your expertise, you've often been hired because of your expertise, but connected across to that, the expertise that everyone else is bringing as well? Like, how do you balance that? You know, sometimes people just want you to tell them the answer because you're the expert. And that tension between you saying, I am the expert, and that's why I know we have to go and ask everybody else as well. Let's start over here. Matt. I mean, I think particularly working with kids, you've, you have sort of an ethical obligation to be able to translate what they're telling you um, into an end outcome. So it's, a, it's actually a really tricky uh, thing to do, often um, especially when the client might not necessarily want what's being asked for. Um, I think you need to take clients on the journey. Um, one of the, a really great tool that I've seen um, from the Bernard Van Leerd Foundation, they created a sort of a virtual reality app where clients can put on um, the VR goggles and see what it would be like to experience a city from 95 centimetres, which is the average height of a three-year-old. And all of a sudden you put on this VR goggle and you start realising many things. First, you can't reach a handle, you can't wash your hands, you, your eyesight is at the height of a car exhaust, so you're inhaling all of the fumes around you. You often can't see over a fence, windows are way too high. There are so many complexities about your tiny life that you would have never experienced without this tool. So I think you sort of need to 
take the users on the journey, but also take the clients to somehow bridge those two things uh, together and then hope for a good outcome. But that often takes money and time to do well. Well, it, I mean, that's what I find so interesting is it's, it's in a way your role is as much a translator as your own core expertise. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have tried those goggles and um, it's, funnily enough, it's actually also roughly the height that you are where you're in a, you are a person who's using a wheelchair. So it sort of suddenly starts to yeah, expand your mind quite a lot. But in terms of that idea of kind of translation, I think it is both kind of translation and using that deep technical expertise to start bringing together, well, what is the kind of broader agenda and the, the broader place outcomes that we need here with those individual um, uh, perspectives and viewpoints. And I think about some of the work that you were, I think, mentioning earlier with CrowdSpot and in a, a previous role, I was doing some work with um, Free to Be and CrowdSpot and XYX Lab, which was around safer cities for women and um, for women and um, uh, women and girls and it was really kind of looking at you know how, how do you make nighttime environments that sort of work and there was all of this enormous really dense beautiful rich kind of qualitative and quantitative data but the challenge there is but what does that actually mean when you need to translate that into a kind of technical brief you know how do you actually take that and then change a, an environment in response and how do you make sure that it's adaptable enough and I think it's that kind of expertise around well how do you start to connect what the, these kind of data streams with that broader policy agenda and with a kind of built environment know-how how do you start to kind of spin those together that is really the kind of the key role in this space. And I think then the, the final task would be to um, have this kind of feedback loop where you come up with some solutions and you come back to people and you say, okay, so how about this? You know, does this work or are there still some problems with it? And then, yeah, having a, a design emerge rather than just kind of be a fixed thing that's static in space and time. Wow, thank you very much, everybody. Thank you also for putting up with the planes and the helicopters and the cars. Uh, this has been a Cities People Love event. If you're not already connected to Cities People Love, there are some Q codes around where you can just link to it. I know we're keen for your questions, we're keen for your contributions, and, um, and please, uh, yes, stay connected. There's a lot more reading to do on the platform as well. Articles around engaging and designing cities for people with autism, for people who have been diagnosed with dementia. So, uh, can I ask you all to please thank our panel members? And I just want to check that our Cities People Love team are hanging around for a little while. If anybody wanted to come up and talk to Leanne or Rachel or Alice here. Yes, we are, thanks. Great, <laughs> thank you. Thanks very much, everybody. You've been can, great. Can I just thank add you. our thanks to you, Des? Thank you very much for facilitating today. We, Des has been a big part of the team as well, so it's been fantastic. Um, I also just did want to mention to everyone that we're launching a, another activity next this week, which is a game, which is focused on this key question of how do we make sure we design the city for everyone? And actually, as some of you were talking about some of your responses today, I was like, perfect, that's how we've thought about the game. And, and the game is sort of you have to choose your companion, which will be someone who has needs different to you, and then you move your way through the game to try and understand what it's like for them. So that will be launched this week. So please, um, yeah, if you... If you um, follow us on, grab the QR code and follow us. We'll be able to keep you in touch when that's, when that's launched. And that's um, as part of an activity that's leading to Melbourne Knowledge Week. So we'll be um, talking about the results of the game. We're using the game as a, similar to what you mentioned actually, Natalia, as a bit of a data sourcing kind of um, exercise as well to think about how people do engage with the city. So we'll be talking about at, that at Melbourne Knowledge Week in a month. So thanks everyone very much. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Natalia. Great images. Thank you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Mm -hmm.